Thank you for joining us. Um, I, I just wanted to say that I appreciate the opportunity to talk about what we have going on here in, in Hot Springs. We, it's been a, um, a ride for sure. Once we got started with the Bridge to Hope movement, which is the, the Bridges Out of Poverty initiative in Hot Springs, it has been a wild ride. We actually um, have been involved with the vulnerable population in our area for about 20, 21 years now. So that part of it is not new to us, but what we're doing now is a little bit new. And I wanted to give you just a little bit of history about how we got where we are. In order for us to know and to identify where we're going, we need to first learn where we've been and how we got where we are. So I have just a, a few statistics here for you that uh, may be a surprise, and like I said, not to some Arkansans, but to others. So some just a little bit of background. We are a, a small town in, in Arkansas. We have just about 36,000 in our population, but on any given day during the vacation months, we may run 100, 150,000 people. We um, are a resort town, and we have a lot of individuals that retire here. We're actually located on the edge of a forest and a mountain range and are designated as a national park one of the first national parks actually in the United States. You can see the little purple circle there to show where we're at in the state. And one of the things that we discovered as we were going through this process of trying to determine how to become and stay involved with the vulnerable population of our city was that we really kind of have a split personality or um, to borrow a, a, a title of a book we are a tale of two cities. The one city that most people are aware of is uh, the prosperous resort and retirement community. That's what most people see whenever they visit and, and run through here. Um, we attract tourists and retirees from middle class, and sometimes those retirees um, and new residents to our city don't see what we've experienced on the impoverished side. So through our process, as we were learning about how we could continue to help people in our community, we had to discover what we, what our second city looked like. And what we found was that we have a disproportionately high number of low-income citizens, and that's in relation to the United States and then in Hot Springs in relation to our state. The second city, of course, has low-income families with low job skills, and um, we're a service-based tourist community. So the majority of the jobs that we do have in our market are low-paying entry-level jobs, which if you've been involved in the Bridges initiatives for any time at all, you've probably learned that that works well for generational poverty. In the middle model of generational poverty, you can work, you might get upset, walk away from your job, and at least in our market, there's always another job just like it for you to walk back into. So what we 
want to talk about today is how do we break that cycle? And generational poverty is no, it's not news to Arkansas. The first settlers to Arkansas arrived in the 19th century and were usually escaping difficult circumstances. So this is, again, what we're built on. The most motivated and skilled people who were moving east to west didn't settle in Arkansas and primarily do the inhospitable swamps in East Arkansas. If I have anybody here in that part of the state, you'll understand that. Uh, the land was difficult to farm. It was a great place to stay and enjoy the surroundings, but a lot of people didn't. It was actually said of some of the 19th century settlers that when a man got in trouble with the law somewhere else, he stole a horse and made off to Arkansas. He would stay forever because nobody would come here to find him. Homesteaders did not find a land of milk and honey. Rather, they found topsoil and rolling hills and mountains that were difficult to farm, beautiful but difficult to farm. And by the end of the 19th century, Arkansas was the poorest of all states in America. That's what we're building on. That's our history. This is a piece of our history that I found interesting. Um, I don't know if you will or not, but there was actually a photographer in Heber Springs who made a living in photography, but he saw a different type of people in his community and in Arkansas in general. He would sit outside his shop and watch these people come walking down his sidewalk and, and ask them to come inside his store so that he could take a picture of what Arkansas looked like. So I have a, a couple of pictures here that were taken in the 30s and the 40s. They're called Disfarmers Photos. They've done a, a book, a story, and a documentary on him, and you'll see photos like this throughout. But this is what Arkansas looked like in the 30s and the 40s. Then we're going to move on to Hot Springs. And in Hot Springs, we had a... Uh, a character as well. We had a history and we had a reputation. In 1939, Liberty Magazine published a four-part series of stories about corruption in Hot Springs. And the series was titled Hell in Hot Springs. I know that a lot of other communities have similar histories, but um, in some cases, we're still trying to overcome some of these. Hot Springs was actually described as the wickedest city in the United States in the crime capital of America. It was a place for gangsters to hang out. We saw Pretty Boy Floyd, Lucky Luciano, Alvin Carpus, and Al Capone. Al Capone actually even had a private suite at the Arlington Hotel. Some people say that uh, Hot Springs was Vegas before there was a Vegas, if that gives you an idea of what it was like back in the day. So enough of the history. We're going to move into the 21st century, and this is a, an aerial view of Hot Springs. That big yellow building there in the center is our um, rehab facility. It used to be known as the Army, Army Navy Hospital, and those are the rolling hills and mountains and beautiful area. Um, one of the local NPR radio commentators has described the town as poverty with a view. So. That is 
beautiful hot springs. And again, whenever we were looking at how to continue to serve the vulnerable population of our city, we had to look at what our city, county, and state consisted of. So we looked at what we came from, and we were definitely a state of poverty, dating all the way back to the 19th century. We looked at poverty now, and most of the people in this webinar will probably be familiar with the national poverty statistics. We've seen some changes. The census report shows that poverty is getting better. And where the national average went from 11.4% households in poverty, it went, has gone down to 10.4. In Arkansas, we were at 19.4, and we have since reduced to 19.1. That still means that we have about 500,000 individuals in poverty in Arkansas, and that means living at or below poverty thresholds. And we don't do any better whenever we're measuring children living in poverty. You can see this chart, and it shows that we were ranked fifth originally in 2010. In the 2015 update, it shows that we're at 27.5, which is not much different. I believe we are still ranked as the fourth worst for children in the United States. 32% of our children in Hot Springs or in Garland County are living in poverty. That's one in three that we see. So we have some, some room for growth. See that as a potential. After all of these statistics were uncovered and um, we realized that we had a daunting task, we needed to take that to our community, to the stakeholders, to help us figure out what the solution was. So when we asked the community what do you think about poverty? Is there poverty? What's the solution? These are the answers we got. They basically boiled down into three different categories, one of which was, can't they just get a job? We've all heard that, right? Seems easy. Send the able-bodied people out to work. And then the next solution that we came up with was on the other end of the spectrum, we just need more government involvement. Let's increase the subsidies. Let's make sure that every household has a living wage. And, and I have to say, no news to anyone here, but there are always solutions on both sides of that spectrum and the proper solution falls in between. The last one we were a little surprised by we actually have segments of our population out here who said, we don't have any poverty. We, our community is built where there is a huge divide between the haves and the have-nots. And some of the neighborhoods that are defined as low-income neighborhoods are in certain segments of the city where the individuals who live middle class may not see very often. So in their minds, they really didn't see any poverty. And some of the retirees, for instance, who live in an adjacent community will come to Hot Springs to shop, but they just don't see the poverty. So what did we do? 
the first thing that we did was we created a uh, vision team, which was just a small group of people. That small group of people analyzed those statistics that we found, analyzed the conversation that we had with our community about solutions, and tried to come up with something that would further the discussion. So along that line, from the vision team, we decided to engage the AHA process. We brought Terry Drusy Smith here to do a Bridges workshop. We invited about 100 of our closest friends in Hot Springs. Terry spent two days with us talking about the Bridges constructs and how we could use that as a solution within our community. We had a lot of excitement and um, energy around that. From that group of people who attended, we identified stakeholders and created a steering committee. That steering committee helped us to determine that it was time to just do something. We, we had to do something. So we got into the getting ahead piece first. With the community that we have, we realized that we needed to be able to show product from an effort that was being put out, Some, something that could be built on that would show a change. We contacted other agencies. We um, finally just decided that we were going to kick off a getting ahead class and we would just see how it goes. So we set aside three individuals to be licensed or certified as getting ahead facilitators. And as we went through that process of training, we realized that that was a great tool for our community too. Because in going through that resource assessment contained within getting ahead, there was a measurement tool there that we could use for our organization and for, and the, I think the one thing that we found within that when we assessed our resources was that we had a whole new resource that we had not had and that we needed to. And that is the new social capital that we had in our Bridges communities. There are over 350 Bridges communities throughout the United States. And if you haven't already picked up this book, the Vision to Action book, there are two editions, I believe. Lots of success stories in there from other communities. We fanned through that book, we read those stories, and we made phone calls. We actually called communities that had an active Bridges initiative within their community to find out what worked for them, what we needed to do, and to retrofit it back to our community. So then we kicked off our very first Getting Ahead class in January of 2015. The one thing that was a huge surprise to us was the power of the problem solvers that we had as investigators in that class. They identified for us, as the book 
instructs and, of course, trusting the process, it did occur. The investigators identified for us what the challenges were in our Hot Springs community. And that was valuable information. They identified several areas that we needed to jump on that were huge barriers. And this is common throughout most communities that have a poverty issue, that have a vulnerable population, and that is transportation. Jobs, education is key. Housing and advocacy. Um, and I'd have to say that this is one of the things that the Getting Ahead investigators told us was that through the Getting Ahead process, they realized that they had identified things that they now know that they didn't know even existed. And being able to communicate through that requires an advocate. So we actually did a subdivision within our steering committee of each of those topics so that we could spend more time on them and um, devote an entire team to looking at some solutions. Through that process, we were talking to the community, we were um, engaging stakeholders, and we had one of our local employers step up to us. They were drawn to the Bridges model, they were drawn to the Getting Ahead class, and they stepped up and said, how can we help and what do we need to do? And this is just a graph of who our employers are in Hot Springs. The employer that came to us is that orange piece of the pie. That's Oaklawn. And you can see that at this point in time, they employed 1,400 of our Hot Springs population, which was second to our largest hospital in town. And is actually right ahead of Walmart. But Oaklawn is a racing venue, casino, an event venue, but we sat down and talked. They learned more about bridges, and we learned more about Oaklawn. One of the things that we learned again through the Getting Ahead process and through bridges in particular is that we have to look through our lens and be able to understand the other lens that we're talking to, whether that is working across a business into an individual or vice versa. In our case, we were a social services organization looking into a business, and we wanted to find a win-win um, win solution for both. Oakland loved what we were doing and getting ahead. They loved the new future stories that were coming out of our classes. And they wanted to hire some of those individuals. But what we heard and what Oakland said was they had a challenge in that they were and are governed by the gaming association in our state, which required that everyone who wanted to obtain employment there to fill out a 22-page application with an extensive background check. Now, for anyone here on this webinar who is currently actively involved with getting ahead, just ask yourself that question. How many of your um, investigators, graduates, 
could pass an extensive background check and be able to obtain employment. It was tough. So we worked with Oaklawn and the Gaming Commission, took about nine months, but we changed the application for entry level interested employees or potential employees to be able to apply for work. We took that 22 page application and converted it down to two pages. And this is for positions that are non-gaming. So in food service, in hospitality, in housekeeping, they now had a whole new option. Oaklawn was so thrilled with this that they actually put together a, a job fair for our graduates, just for our graduates. They showed up, they were interviewed, and I believe they hired 75% of them on the spot. These individuals now have new future stories. They have um, benefits, which is huge. I talked to one just the other day, and she is currently a supervisor. She's been moved into supervision in one of their housekeeping departments and now has a 401k, which she didn't even know what those initials stood for before getting ahead. And now she's planning for her own. So what are our next steps? Our next steps are that we're continuing with getting ahead in the Just Getting By world, of which we've had 11 classes so far. We just started two new ones. We have graduated just about 100 individuals. We also started getting ahead while getting out. We provide the while getting out curriculum at our county detention center. And in the detention center, we shorten that time span. We don't shorten the curriculum or the classes at all, but instead of doing classes once a week, we actually hold classes twice a week. And that's because as a detention center, the inmates are not sentenced for as long as a typical correction center. So we have eight weeks to get through the curriculum for the individuals who sign up. And last I heard, it's one of the most popular programs that they offer in the detention center. They walk out with a lot of information. And we will be starting the workplace stability curriculum training at one of our employers. We held a workforce stability workshop um, in October, and we had about 30 people in attendance, one of which was one of our largest employers. It's actually a, a phone bank who has a huge turnover. They're explicitly interested in the stability in the workplace. We'll be delivering this to their management and then the getting a headpiece to their employees beginning this first quarter. We're very excited about this. Think that it's gonna be a game changer for Hot Springs. And something I haven't talked about yet, but something that we've been doing and plan to continue to do is what we call community discussions. We actually hold a monthly meeting, same time, same place, on purpose for a community discussion about poverty in Hot Springs and in Garland County. That's held at our Chamber of Commerce. The Chamber of Commerce allows us the venue. 
we send out a invitation. That invitation is again, same date, same time. And we typically have 10 to 15 individuals, sometimes more, who come to the table to talk about the bridges constructs and how they can be applied in our community. We walk away with individuals who are ready to be engaged in the solution, who bring solutions to the table and who want to continue that conversation. And there's another piece that we are particularly excited about. We're privileged in the state of Arkansas to have administrative leadership at the level of our government that is interested in making improvements in areas that we're interested in too. The, our governor has made a commitment to make a difference in recidivism and foster care. And we know how that is weaved into generational poverty and how they um, dovetail one solution will lead into the other. The governor has acknowledged what we're doing here in Hot Springs as being interested in solving some of these issues at a community level. So they've come to us and asked us to lead the Garland County Restore Hope Initiative focused on recidivism and foster care. The beauty of this is that not only will our steering committee be involved in those sub task force areas that I talked about, but one area that we have had a hard time engaging is the public sector. The, gover the governor will actually bring them to the table. So we will have the governor's vote and support behind us on this. We will be delivering our first program probably the first quarter of 2018 and just anxious to see what that holds for us. And then of course everybody likes to know that you're seeing improvement in your efforts. Our 2016 poverty rate is down. We saw a 2015 number earlier in the slideshow that showed 19.1. We're now down to 17 at a state level. And under the age of 18, we're down from 32.4 in Garland County to 24%. The median household income in the United States is $55,000. We still have a ways to go in Arkansas. Our median household income is still at 42,000 but we are moving in the right direction. Our educational level is at 85%. Now, that is individuals who complete high school and beyond. That is lower than the national average, but better than it has been. So we are seeing improvements in what we're doing. All of these efforts are not without hard work and not without the involvement of everyone within the community. We have, we have tried to involve all sectors, all venues. Everybody brings a perspective to the table. That's not different than what any of these other communities are doing. But I will tell you, and I have to, to do a, a shout out to our partner community, 
and that is Muskogee, Oklahoma. As we went through the Vision to Action book, we actually ran across Muskogee, Oklahoma, holding similar statistics that we do. Their community size is very similar. They um, have some similar statistical numbers that, as compared to Hot Springs. So we reached out to the executive director at that time, who was Tom Martindale. Actually brought him to Hot Springs to help us get more comfortable with what we're doing. And I'll tell you, the one thing that he told us over and over again, could not hear it often enough, and now it makes sense, just trust the process. It makes sense now. So we are trusting the process, and it is paying off for us. I know that Tom got tired of hearing us call, but a lifesaver. I've always said there is no need to reinvent the wheel. Look to other communities who have a successful story to tell, who have already been down that road, and take what they've done, learn from it, and put it into your community to see how it might fit. This is our program that we're working with now. I have to say that it moves and changes every day. We have to be flexible. We have to come to the table with an understanding that I need to understand you and we have to understand each other before we can even identify our solution. So I want to thank everybody for coming to this webinar today. We're about 30 minutes into this. I will be happy to answer any questions that you might have. Um, I see that somebody has asked a question about the name of the book. The book that I referenced is called From Vision to Action. That is a book that is published by AHA Process. You'll find it on the AHA Process website. And again, there are two volumes. I don't know that there's a third one yet, but I know that there are at least two volumes of it. And I see that Charles is asking how we're funded. Charles, we are privately funded. Small foundations, churches. We have some grant funding. We do still provide medical services to the uninsured in our state. And we have some funding through the Department of Health on that side. But we are primarily private funded, which poses a challenge, too. So a lot of that is not legacy funding. It doesn't occur year after year. Looks like we have two more questions. The first from Jordan. What strategy was most effective in cultivating community buy-in? The strategy that was the most effective for us was graduation of our getting ahead classes. We made it a point when we graduated our first class in trying to um, design the agenda for that class. We pondered, who are we going to have to speak? Who are we going to be part of the program? And then we finally realized that it was the graduates that were the stars of the program. So we had graduates stand up and talk about their process through getting ahead, where they came from, what they learned in class, what kind of an impact it made on their lives, and then what their future story looks like. 
we invited the community as a whole to these graduations. We recorded some of the graduates speaking and we've tried to get that out to the community. That has been the best source of buy-in for our community was to be able to see that finished product. That's great. Showing, not Showing. telling. You know. um, Annette asks, how did you get your business – well, I don't know. Do you think that overlaps enough with our previous well, question? It, it really kind of does. Um, I would say, though, as far as getting the business community involved, our partnership with our local chamber of commerce played a big part in that. Because not only did we continue to tell the Getting Ahead graduate story, but we did it from the business venue that they trust, which is the Chamber of Commerce. And then whenever we talked about workplace stability and could show an ROI whenever they focused on engaging the constructs within their business, we are gaining more business community involvement. That's great. Charles has asked about your budget. I don't know to what extent you can share that with us. If not, we can certainly move on. Well, um, we have a, an organizational budget because we have several programs that we run. But as far as the Getting Ahead program, we have been successful to run the Getting Ahead piece with in-kind donations from organizations. We, the model is that you have a venue, you provide childcare if needed, um, a meal before every class or during class, um, incentives or stipends for the investigators, obviously the curriculum, and then the office supplies. And if you put a pencil to all of that, in our market, that came to about $16,000, whenever you put 16 participants in that picture. We have been very fortunate to get in-kind donations for several of those categories. And our average right now is that we can do a class for about $8,000 without having to eliminate any of those line items. That's great. Um, Jordan has asked, and maybe we can take this as our last question and then close, um, what recommendations you might give for an entirely volunteer-based coalition in getting a program like this off the ground? <laughs> I, I know. I have to say that this has been personally my biggest adjustment in moving from the for-profit world of banking into nonprofit is volunteer management. Um, it's been a learning process for me and a bit of a curve for me. So um, I learn constantly. So getting a volunteer-based coalition off the ground in our area has been using the same principles that we use to get the community involved as a whole. And that was got to tell the story, let the graduates tell their story. Um, we were very fortunate in the beginning with our Getting Ahead program to find a facilitator who had a heart for it, and it just took one to lead the charge. That one facilitator was able to gather majority of the first participants in the class. Those stories are what continue to bring more volunteers to the So it's that word of mouth more so than anything else that has that has fueled the momentum. No doubt. No doubt. Well that's great. Thank you, Lynn. Uh, we'll see you next time.
Have a good week. Have a good weekend. Thank you very much.